This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Descent Magazine. Descent's spring issue, out May 8th, includes a special section on the future of the climate left after the Inflation Reduction Act. It features incisive analyses by several former Dig guests, including Alyssa Battistoni on the persistent urgency of climate politics, Amna Akbar on the fight to stop Cop City, Kate Aronoff on the future of climate organizing, and the Dig's very own senior advisor, Thea Riofrancos, on the fraught politics of lithium mining. It's going to be a really great issue. You do not want to miss it. Visit DescentMagazine.org slash subscribe to get your copy. And for a limited time only, Descent is sending new subscribers a copy of Siddhartha Deb's new novel, The Light at the End of the World. Subscribe now to get both at DescentMagazine.org slash subscribe. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is part one of a two-part series on progressive city politics in two big American cities, Philadelphia and Chicago. This first part is my interview with two old friends from my days as a reporter at Philadelphia City Paper, public education organizer, city council member, and now candidate for mayor Helen Gim, and also Nikhil Saval, a former labor activist, founder of Reclaim Philly, editor at N Plus One, and now Pennsylvania State Senator. In a few days, I'll be posting part two, an interview conducted by guest host Micah Utrecht on Chicago and Brandon Johnson's incredible victory there in the mayoral race. Things can indeed seem bleak out there, but... The reality is the left is making huge strides at the local and state level. We have a lot to learn from these experiences. If you are feeling despaired and disconnected, I strongly encourage you to get involved in building power from the ground up. It's really been an eye-opener for me doing this work the past few years in Rhode Island. Before we get this started, The Dig, as you likely know, is a listener-supported podcast, And frankly, it never ceases to blow my mind that listeners just like you who voluntarily support us with a monthly contribution have made this podcast possible, made it possible for me to do this for a living and to pay all the people who help put the show out every week. I started the pod in 2016, having zero clue what I was doing and not knowing whether anyone at all would listen. So thank you. We're not only keeping the dig up and running with these donations. We're also investing your contributions in doing more incredible work with The Dig Presents, our new narrative documentary series. I do hope you like it because it is expensive. If you have been meaning to support The Dig and you haven't done so yet, please do so now. We are doing well, but in order to keep The Dig Presents going and to order a second season, we do need to raise more. If you live in the U.S., we also have books, tote bags, and coffee mugs to send you in the mail if you contribute at least $10 a month. And a contribution of any size at all for anyone, that gets you our really wonderful weekly newsletter emailed to your inbox. Please take a moment to contribute now. We pay well nothing, and we overwhelmingly fund this podcast through your voluntary contributions. So please voluntarily contribute now. That's patreon.com slash the dig. Okay, 
Here's Helen Gim and Nikhil Saval. Helen Gim has been a public education organizer, city council member, and is now a candidate for mayor of Philadelphia. Nikhil Saval is a former labor activist, founder of Reclaim Philly, editor at N Plus One, and now Pennsylvania State Senator from District One, which covers South Philly and Center City. Helen Gim and Nikhil Saval, welcome to The Dig. Great to be with you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Good to be here. Thinking back to when I first met you two over a decade ago in Philly, Helen, you you were a leading public school advocate. And Nikhil, you did labor work for Unite Here, I believe, alongside being an editor at N Plus One. Now, Nikhil, you're a state senator. And Helen, you have served on city council and are now a front runner in a tight five-way mayor's race. Larry Krasner, one of my best sources as a criminal justice reporter at City Paper on what was wrong with the Philadelphia Police Department and the DA is, of course, today himself the DA. To start off, how did you two, and more more broadly, how did Philly social movements and the Philly left get from where they were at when I first met you to the point where they're at today? To me, it seems like a really key moment above all else was the struggle over Philly public schools that really blew up in the aftermath of the global financial crisis and amid the recession. Something rather similar to what we just saw in Chicago, where where Brandon Johnson won the mayoral race. Yeah, I mean, I think that Philly's social movements were formed in communities and neighborhoods all across our city that dealt with the austerity politics and weak political infrastructure that reflected a lot of status quo politics and the moneyed interests that lined up, you know, around schools issues, around housing, around neighborhood displacements and around policing that really activated, transformed and energized a lot of communities to respond and um, grow in their power and continue to come together. I think this the 2001 takeover of the Philadelphia public schools and the call for it to be turned over to a single for-profit company, making us the largest company in the world, uh, largest school system in the world to be run for profit. That was Edison. Right. Edison Schools, Inc., which no longer exists at all, which was, I think, a merging of a lot of these different forces. So it did bring together the the groups of people that talked about how we disinvested in young people, built out a school to prison pipeline and then used, uh, you know, like our policing and other systems to reinforce it along the way. It involved a lot of neighborhoods and community organizations who had long felt that their you could understand the disinvestment within a neighborhood and community by looking at the quality of the school in that neighborhood and community. So the takeover of the district, the defunding around it, you know, was a deliberate and yet a clear demonstration that neighborhoods would be further disinvested in, not invested in. And of course, you had a big education labor uh, organizing front that had faced off against, you know, a state legislature that had long failed to fund our schools, long gone to war with labor organizing and unions in particular. And now in this act, they were doubling down on the biggest, most extreme kind of option that could be offered. And, you know, what was amazing about that 2001 struggle 
it was very grassroots led. It was, there were a lot of organizations to be clear, but when we filled the streets, it was thousands of people that would come out from neighborhoods and communities. So this was deeply felt within Philadelphia. And then I think the powerful thing was we, we beat back the proposal on Edison. We held them down to a handful of schools and they were gone out of the school district within, within the decade, right? Like it sounds like a really long time, but they, they were eroding constantly after once uh, claiming, proclaiming that they would take it over. But that movement, the entities that formed the spine of that, of that movement, which was more than just like a left kind of politics. It was actually reaching into neighborhoods and community organizations, activating faith communities and a lot of others that would not maybe have traditionally identified as left, but pulling them into what ended up becoming a pretty cohesive struggle over the next decade. And then it doubled down with the austerity politics of Michael Nutter, that fueled it yet again to to claim bigger and bigger victories. But I think the amazing thing was, was that that initial entity really held together. And it was about, yes, the takeover of the public schools, but because it involved so much of the forces that had worked against communities for so long, it ended up becoming like kind of a fulcrum and a place around which um, a lot of organizing came out of evolved and and I think built the strength of this political movement now. Nikhil? Helen put it, you know, beautifully, I think, kind of narrating that that entire encapsulating how it, you know, it all it all all these kinds of, you know, essentially neoliberalism and, you know, and all it was doing just were the the ramifications of it were felt so deeply in this fight, existential fight over the fate of Philadelphia's public school system. My own kind experience in it was with Unite Here. And I think actually the transformation of Unite Here in part through this process is sort of instructive. So Unite Here, which represents hospitality workers in, in one of its locals, another local represents cafeteria workers and student climate safety staff in, in the school district. The union was coming out of trusteeship in the early part of the uh, the last decade, um, the 2010s. And you know, then the then Governor Corbett had cut nearly a billion dollars from the state education budget, combined with uh, Mayor Nutter's own, you know, austerity policies, charter expansion, etc. You know, the school district was in was in deep crisis. They were closing, you know, a couple dozen schools, etc. And for Unite Here, an entire class of workers was being laid off. It it the union was pushed over time and pushed itself to, you know, its members went on hunger strike. In in front, these were cafeteria workers. Exactly, cafeteria workers, student climate safety staff. You know who who worked the hallways in the school in in schools. You know they, it was all just thousands of people starving themselves in front of Governor Corbett's office on Broad Street. It was a kind of you know militant action that I think the union hadn't really taken before, or not any time recently. And I think it's you know the. It, they won ultimately like those jobs were able to be won back. I mean, it was part of an overall effort to make the fight over what, you know, in this case was a contract fight and a jobs fight, a social justice fight, a fight over the fate of the school district. You know, the Unite Here was then part of this, or, you know, an organization called PCAPS, you know, it, it kind of like public education coalition. It was through that that I first learned about Helen's work, um, you know, personally. 
And I, you know, it was one way that I think so many different kinds of fights, the fight over service sector work, you know, in the city of Philadelphia, in schools and in the hospitality industry was connected to the school district, the way over, you know, the way that, you know, I think that there were just so many different ways that housing, you know, the, the, the fact of decades of disinvestment in black and brown neighborhoods, all of these things were bound up in this, in this fight. And, and you started to see the results a few years later, you know, with, Helen running for and winning city council in 2015, Kendra Brooks um, in, in, in 2019, another, you know, kind of veteran of the, these, these fights over the school district. And it was, you know, and, and it also an overall shifting of the tide, a changing of the common sense, I think, um, from a, a largely pro-privatization, pro-charter agenda. We, we should remember that the leading candidate for mayor, at least initially, in 2015 was one of the biggest charter school uh, proponents, you know, Senator Anthony Williams, that his defeat and then, you know, as you know, was kind of presaged what strength of this movement. And and so I think it's it, it was amazing. And I was, you know, I was glad to be to be part of it in my way. We've seen a lot of disaffection and pessimism on the left sometimes since since Bernie lost in 2020 as Republicans maintain their stranglehold on the courts as as build back better got eviscerated by cinema and mansion and, and so on and so on and so on. But Philadelphia is one of many, many cities where incredible strides have been made and uh, will continue to be made and hopefully really big ones very soon. How do you two read current political conditions in the United States with all that unevenness between what's going on at local state in federal levels, why, why, in other words, do city do city and state politics matter? What sort of possible, what sort of different possibilities are available when one stops just like depressively reading the national news and engages on on the local level? Well, I mean, speaking just for myself, I have never really been anything more than a local movement activist. Like, I don't think that. Generally, there's anybody who's going to fight harder for Philadelphia than Philadelphians themselves. And even if you had seen friendly politics at the state and federal level, unless we create a plan and vision for ourselves and a real path on how to deliver those things, build out our own internal capacity, make sure that we're working on the ground on equity, racial justice, you know, a real transformation of how people live. I think that you just, you don't get to where you're going to be. And so I've always dedicated myself to local movement politics, in part because I see tremendous agency at the grassroots level. I see a clarity of vision. I, I think it's in part because I've seen so many terrible things happen in this city. And, you know, when you go to places of power, oftentimes what you get from your city halls, state legislatures, and your federal government is like a kind of shaking, you know, a shrugging of the shoulders, you know, like maybe half-hearted efforts, but a general feeling of malaise and hopelessness and not a ton of creativity. But when you go back into communities, when sometimes the worst things are happening to people when families are being deported or when schools are being shut down or um, you see a loss of, of essential needs that are happening. The thing is, is that amid all of that, when you don't, I never ever got the sense that people didn't lack the clarity, that there's something about being on the ground in communities that brings together a sense of clarity, a sense of priorities, 
and a sense of this will only matter if actually people's lives get better tomorrow and better than they were today and not as good as you know tomorrow. And I think that informs a lot of my work. I think it's how I look at politics in general, and it's why I'm not necessarily seeing that national trends impact local politics. I actually want the reverse to happen. I'm running for mayor in Philadelphia in part because I believe that great democratic American cities have to lead the way when our state legislatures and our federal government has stagnated on munis- on immigration policy, on transformation around criminal justice reforms, around LGBTQ rights and freedoms, on economic justice issues, on housing, on creative ways, on climate and clean, safe water protections, entrepreneurship and an anti-corporate kind of mentality that gets small businesses moving and real economic revitalization happening. I think that there are bigger, bolder conversations that are happening at the local level. And I think because it has the chance to combine with actual real people and movements on the ground, you see a tremendous amount of opportunity to move and mobilize people. Um, And when you do it at scale in some of the big cities, you're seeing something be really transformational. We throw a ton of money at national politics and we don't invest even a fraction of that into the local. And I think that entities miss a huge amount when they understand that what we're trying to change out there is not, you know, just enough faces and ideas at the at the national level. We're trying to seed the idea that things can have a transformational impact on people and local municipalities, cities, whatever the jurisdiction may be, are the testing ground to prove that when these things happen, they actually make a huge difference. And, um, you know, I'll say just very quickly, our eviction prevention work, um, Senator Saval's work around whole homes repairs and investments on housing infrastructure are really good examples of how local action leads to national investments. Our eviction prevention program was created on the ground in the fourth highest evicting city in the country with the you know, largest poverty rate amongst the largest American cities. And we seeded the first rental assistance, new uh, eviction moratoriums, an eviction diversion program, and transformation within our municipal courts and our legal advocates to lead, you know, the most successful eviction prevention program in the country, taking us from almost 22,000 evictions a year, slashing that by, you know, 70 plus percent during the pandemic. We're Our numbers are ticking up, but they're not where they were before. And, you know, it's proof positive that when we do this, one, we leverage in a lot more state and federal investments that wanted to be part of a successful program to keep people housed, to keep a rental market stable. Um, And then second, we're not the only city going through this. So we were copied by 180 cities across 36 states. This law that we wrote in Philadelphia became the backbone of uh, President Biden's National Renter Bill of Rights. And it's because it was proven on the ground, not because it was hatched in a think tank, but it was proven on the ground, delivered by in a city of one and a half million people. It kept things stable, kept people housed, saved lives, and is moving on a path towards stability. And that's how you can actually prove that the politics that feel so frustrating at the national level can be driven by and won by big cities when we've got the movements to match it.
Nikhil, what, what's your take? Because one of the biggest obstacles for, for a long time to making good things happen in the, in the city of Philadelphia is, of course, the, the state of Pennsylvania and its politics. And I, I think you've been in the minority in the state Senate ever since you were elected. How how can Philly move forward given that for the foreseeable future, it will remain a part of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania? And then, and then how does this struggle in Philadelphia, these movements in Philadelphia, this power building in Philadelphia we've been talking to, how does that relate to a larger project of, of transforming the state? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, there is, you know, there there is certainly a perception that Harrisburg is is not the friend of Philadelphia and it is, you know, a place where good people and ideas go to die. And I'm here to say that I reject that. I reject that um that interpretation. I, I think there's there's good, you know, there's obviously there's some there's a lot, there's a lot to fight and, and a lot to fight over um in Harrisburg and and state politics and city politics can be at odds. But I just feel like we need to, you know, one of the things that I'm excited about with Helen's candidacy is is in fact the 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 possibility of real you know partnerships um, between the city and and some of our state of, you know elected officials the possibility of real partnerships with between among Philly and other municipalities or you know counties across the Commonwealth the the thing is that the kind of trends towards uh, polarization that and and the nationalization of politics that make you know that make actually national politics quite toxic and unforgiving and fairly you know congealed and sterile, I think, in various ways, and, and just deeply frustrating. I think that obviously that is happening, that is that does affect state politics. You know, we certainly are fighting over kinds of national issues around voting rights and the like in, at, at, at a state level. They get played out at a state level. But certain other issues, there's actually just more room for a maneuver. There is more room for local action to influence local actors. And the kind of strength of social movements and the ability of social movements to to build coalitions across a state is really exciting. You know, I think housing is one of them, right? We were able to, in in the legislative minority here, draft, produce, and and win the largest new kind of affordable housing bill in recent Pennsylvania history, which is the whole home repairs program. That was done in part through a kind of federation of groups that, you know, including Reclaim Philadelphia, which I helped found in, in out of the Sanders campaign, but connected to organizations in smaller cities in Lancaster, Reading, to Pittsburgh, Allentown, which are in red and blue districts, right? The kind of political geography is, is, is diverse. But together, you could put together a kind of coalition that frankly, put pressure on state government and made this an issue that was that was unignorable. Housing is just one of those things that that has, you know, rural and, you know, urban constituents. I mean, everyone needs a home. Everyone needs access to a safe and affordable home. And the the kind of nature of it cuts across those boundaries. It's just an instance in which I think, you know, our the theory of change that, you know, Helen, I think, is bringing to this race and the, is is effectively correct, right? You know, visionary policy, like the the kind of eviction diversion program that she was she was talking about, you know, match to social movement capacity does does deliver larger victories than people thought possible, um, and it does instantiate. It does kind of make real certain kinds of federal investments or opportunities that we have had over the last few years. But that, you know, absent this kind of action, we wouldn't have the creative policy coming out of it and the creative wins that we, you know, that we do. We have this eviction. We had federal rental assistance, but only one city 
create use federal rental assistance to create the tools to effective effectively to end poverty based eviction in the city of Philadelphia, and that was that was Helen's program. And then it became modeled, you know, across the country. We had federal money to, you know, that could be used for affordable housing, but only one state used that to fund repairs, weatherization, and job workforce training and energy efficiency. And that was ours. And now you have our new senator, U.S. Senator, Senator Fetterman, speaking about it at, in, at his level, about introducing it at a state level. And it was, you know, this is this speaks to a kind of fallacy, I think, that is you you hear being aired right now, and and it's true in you know in so many different consti- like areas that somehow these things are opposed, right? You're an activist, you're a social movement partisan, you come out of social movements. How do you translate that into effective, you know, legislative work or executive action? And in fact, it's like, no, we've all been trained in like speaking to people who don't agree with us and building coalitions with people and not taking no as, as the automatic answer. And so we're trained in coalition building. We're trained in not in not accepting the status quo. And then that leads that makes means that you try to find creative solutions where there are obstacles and to to things that are that are visionary and that, you know, cannot, you know, supposedly can't be done. Yeah, I think, you know, just to double down on this a little bit, I mean, I think our ideas are old in this country. And I think that's one of the things that Nikhil is like speaking to, even uh, and especially amidst the left, like we need to bring these creative new solutions to the table with new ideas, new language, a transformative way of inspiring and engaging people. New forms of coalitions have to be reestablished in order to meet the moment that we're in. And I think that that is, you know, you can see that happen at all levels of government. I see it happening a lot, you know, when you have the strongest local movements moving, because then they can activate in other ways and excite things at the state and at the federal level. But, you know, either way, I think what we're starving for is this idea of the same problems face us time and time again, but we need new creative solutions and strategies to be able to meet the moment. And I think what both Senator Saval and myself have tried to bring to the table is the commitment to the longer vision, housing as a human right, but packaged in a creative strategic form that leverages in a lot of support on um, whether or not people agree with you on the front end, people see opportunity in this and that it's a new restructuring around not just politics, but about how we invest what our political capital is spent on. And it is a way to not only just bring some energy and health back to policy, but it's a way to bring energy and health back um, and breathe life into our progressive left movement. I think it's extremely important that we do that. And just like any of our opponents may have or people outside, a lot of what leaves them behind are the tired politics, tired ideas of old, shoehorned and shoveled into this moment. And the most strategic way for the progressive left to move forward is to think about merge our movements and our policies with with movements on the ground, and then bring forward new strategies um, to help actualize um, the values that we've long shared. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. 
This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Angela Davis, an autobiography, now available in paperback. Angela Davis has been at the cutting edge of black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolition movements for more than 50 years. In an autobiography, Davis describes her journey from her childhood in Alabama to one of the century's most significant political trials, from her high school political activity to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soldad Brothers, and from the faculty of the philosophy department at UCLA to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. First published in 1974, an autobiography is a powerful and commanding account, written with warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction that resonates today. This new edition features a powerful and expansive new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, an autobiography, available now from Haymarket Books in paperback, hard copy, and as an ebook, and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. Another big thing that that Philly shares with Chicago, alongside that history of education politics, is that gun violence has been rampant, and that that's unsurprisingly a major concern for Philadelphians across the city. But but the way that crime shakes out politically isn't as obvious as as it may have seemed. I mean, just a few years ago, after Eric Adams won in New York, there was this new common sense that quickly emerged that the Democratic base had pivoted hard against Black Lives Matter toward toward supporting a policing crackdown. But in Philly, Krasner easily won re-election in 2021, even though a lot of people thought he was in big trouble. And then in Chicago, Johnson won, even though many thought that his emphasis on addressing the root causes of gun violence would be a major liability. How is gun violence shaping this race? And, and how do you win voters over to a progressive response to gun violence that that maintains a that addresses the root causes, maintains a critique of the carceral state, while also responding to public demands for for safety? Well, this has to be our area of strength. I mean, I think that those of us who've worked so hard on the, you know, on the investment end, all of us understand that violence is rooted in disinvestment, and thus a safety agenda must be rooted in investments. And they have to be delivered, shared, and talked about in ways that reach a broad swath of people. That is the political part of our work. And it is, you know, it's not the ideological part necessarily, but that's the political part of our work. And it's extremely important that we're good at that. I think that when I've gone out into communities, there's no question that people feel that crime is the number one issue. But when you draw down into the layers of what drives crime in the city, they're very much all the things that we've talked about. Number one, education, number two, economic opportunity, and number three, a lack of housing and, you know, uh, strong supports. And that's that's where we have to lean in. I've seen that definitely on the trail that, um, and we see it reflected in polling, people who are leaning into the autocratic, I will fix it, you know, mayor strides through town declaring gun violence to be illegal and this kind of thing has not really resonated that much with the public. A mayor who talks about, who takes seriously the issue of illegal guns, crime and violence that's happening in communities, but talks about being more strategic, 
promoting detectives to help actually reduce caseloads, focusing in on 911 response times, emergency crisis response that has a whole component on mental health has been enormously well-received across many communities as, and is, in fact, being embraced by other law and order type of candidates right now because it resonates and because people need to hear that law and order is as much a slogan as anything else. And it feels hollow when people don't feel like there's um, some things behind it. And, you know, in our in our race, at least, there isn't anybody with a kind of background that Eric Adams had when when he ran as mayor of New York. You didn't see that in Chicago. And I think you then had a pretty hard discussion about where the uh, Chicago electorate, where the Philadelphia electorate, where the American electorate may actually very well land. So, you know, I feel very strongly that this is an area that we should win. We have to win. You know, we have to be clear about safety is the is at the heart of what it means to be a community organizer. It's what drove many of us into this work because our communities were not treated with equality, were not given safety, and were in fact harmed by the very institutions. So, you know, in an election where crime and safety go hand in hand, we have to deliver that big, bold agenda. That's why I've talked about a guaranteed employment plan for youth and you know young adults who are in impacted neighborhoods. It's why I've talked about a true Green New Deal for our schools that modernizes them inside and out. And it's why I've talked about city services that deliver like a clean, green, vibrant with every civic space operating at capacity to neighborhoods for whom that has been so elusive. That feels very real to a lot of people. That feels very impactful. And then combined with somebody with a track record on actually delivering it, you have the chance to be where we are today, which is in you know, a leading position in the mayor's race and a chance to win, you know, one of the largest cities in the country and truly show what safety looks like from an investment agenda. To be clear, there has been a lot of just there have been a lot of attempts in the mayor's race right now. And of course, in the in the in the primary against Larry Krasner in, in 2021 to roll back a lot of the gains of social movements and of, you know, and of elected officials in terms of civil rights, criminal justice reform, uh, we you know there are, there are live proposals from mayoral candidates to bring back stop and frisk. Uh, there you know to repeal a, a very popular bill by by a city council person here, Isaiah Thomas, to uh, you know to reduce routine police stops. Uh, these are things that just a bit. It's not like they you know one if you if this were a true a race in which that was these ideas were popular you would start to f- see other candidates echoing them you know bringing them up and you know kind of to get like the race being pulled in that direction one way or the other but it's not exactly these are these these proposals are unpopular they can be isolated to particular candidates or a set of candidates they end up creating real distinctions candidates who have claimed to want to break up drug corners or refight the drug war these are things that don't that aren't you know taking hold in in the electorate in, in any kind of obvious way or in, or in any kind of discursive way and so i just feel like that speaks to the resilience of the of the policies of these ideas of their real popular meaning in in Philadelphia because they come from Philadelphians right they're not and i'm sure there's just some kind of democratic 
party idea that Eric Adams did this thing in New York. I think we should probably try to do it here in Philly. Let's see if it works. You know, and it's it's not. I don't think it's you know, I don't I don't think you know, I don't think there are any conclusions to draw from that election. And they're and they're not being drawn, at least in any kind of pervasive way in in this election. It's it's an argument. Right. And like and I think overall, the argument is is in terms of preserving our, you know, our, our hard won gains on civil rights here. And and moving forward in that vein, I think is really is really powerful. And moving forward in particular on, you know, the the fact that our city really has rolled back other sorts of what things that we consider rights, the right to have be able to visit a library on the weekends has not been available to us, you know, as Philadelphians for a long time. And that has implications for violence and community and gun violence. The ability of, you know, Philadelphians to get equal city services across the city has not been something that's been available. And that, you know, that's something that I think is being asserted more commonly. And, you know, and, and I think in part because of Helen's leadership on that, on those issues. And you see other candidates taking up those issues and that becoming more common. Um, so that I think is a, you know, is a positive sign overall for what, you know, what, how, how this race is going and how, and, you know, and then, and, and it's the implications for going forward. There's a lot of deep poverty in Philadelphia, and also particularly over the last decade or two, a lot of affluence as well. So this revitalized Philly is a very economically unequal one, something you can see very plainly by comparing conditions at the neighborhood level. And Ellen, my sense is that there's business interests who oppose you who who are warning that attempts to redistribute this wealth will, will drive those creating the wealth away. What do you say to that? And how can Philly create a form of of growth that's different from what we see now, one that's broad-based and inclusive and, and that uplifts in particular the poorest people in the city? Yeah, so I've made very clear that, you know, many of the forces that we fought in communities and neighborhoods are the very same forces that replicate themselves in the candidates who are running in the Philadelphia mayor's race. If I didn't say it before, I believe that, you know, you've got austerity bureaucrats, you've got status quo electeds, you've got moneyed millionaires and multimillionaires who are in this race. And it's no surprise that the ideas that they uh, sell are, are just too small for this moment. And you can feel it. On the issue of poverty, you know, I've often said Philadelphia is listed as the largest poor city, the poorest large city in America, but we're not a city full of poor people. We're a city that keeps its people poor. And if you understand that, then you have to understand that everything then must be a purposeful, conscious, deliberate reversal of policies where we have subsidized wealth and taxed poverty. And we've made it difficult for ourselves to get out of that when we assume or presume that markets will fix things or we allow, uh, you know, private sector to be able to dictate and manage the, a large part of the direction of the city. There's a call right now for governments to lean in right now, to be strong for our people, especially amidst economic chaos and sort of this uncertain transition period into a new world, which could be anything right now. It could be worse than the one that we had. It could see the same, you know, capital forces double down and keep people away and stratify the American, uh, you know, Americans into like more extreme class differences. But 
we could also move towards, I think, what you are speaking to, which is a very purposeful reversal of those policies, because not only have they held so many people down, they're not actually unlocking the opportunity. And we have a unique moment to do that, because I think corporate power has been, you know, kind of put on a back step. Our corporate towers, for example, in the biggest cities have largely emptied out and people went home to the places where they felt safe, where their children were educated, where services were clean and vibrant. And that is a pathway for our American cities right now. The things that we sacrifice at the altars of like massive subsidies or corporate tax breaks or wholesale giveaways on on land and uh, revenue, they're no longer drawing businesses or they don't overcome deficiencies that are that we're seeing at a glaring level at, at cities. So we have a great opportunity now to do what I think, you know, I've been trying to talk about for, for decades, which is the livable city. The city that Philadelphians want will be the city that other people want as well. But a livability agenda focuses in on safety, on, you know, a quality education, affordable housing, vibrant transit systems, city services and city uh, civic spaces that are uh, an anchor and uh, a way to create almost like resilience hubs, whether they be community resilient hubs, health resilient hubs, or economic resilient hubs in neighborhoods across the city, because that is actually what's anchoring people here and what prevents them from leaving. But that work is really purposeful. Uh, there, All the other candidates in this race have already pre-committed to slashing corporate taxes while also promising city services. And I believe that they're not being honest with either voters or with businesses. Um, these things are a choice. And I do believe that when put before Philadelphia voters or when presented before the public, people don't think that incremental changes around tax cuts is going to make a difference when we could be talking about bonds that can pay for new schools over the next decade, whether we're talking about subsidizing the wealthiest properties in our city or whether we're going to lean in on a big affordable housing plan that can actually leverage in a lot of private investment as well. I think these things are in play right now with the mayor's race, but there's no question that they are in play at all times. And I hope that what your listeners will do is recognize this is a critical point in time that we've got right now over the next two years. And we really need to lean in at every chance that we get, both political, on the ground, grassroots mobilizing, to actually reverse this idea that the economy that's been sold to us time and time again, the trickle down, the corporate power, the you know big companies have to lead cities, that's no longer viable. On the ground, the livable city, the invested city, the city services that are that are fueling and anchoring people here, those are the things that are actually transformational. Those are the reasons why I think many people who come into this work have ideas that are just too small for this moment. And our work feels visionary. It feels big. It feels hopeful. And it's about building not only a new Philadelphia, but a new country as well. I think that what a lot of the suburban elites, and it is largely kind of you know, outside the city coalition determining, you know, what should be the, the the fate of the city. I think what they're constantly rehearsing is, you know, effectively a fantasy, which is always a fantasy of some version of 
do we bring Amazon here or do we not? Do we get this spectacular stadium project or do we not? I mean, I think there is this just old idea of what drives and catalyzes city development and what catalyzes, you know, e- you know, equitable development in in a city to the extent that they're concerned about it. And it really is these just enormous kind of construction projects or tax giveaways that entice large companies to move to a city or not. And I think their fear of someone like Helen is that she wouldn't play ball with that model of development. And the fact is just that there is a different model that we, that is on offer. And it's not just a different, you know, it's a different model that we on the left, I think, have been developing over time, which is, you know, one, I would simply class it mostly under a kind of Green New Deal model of development, which is that it would involve a massive investment in existing infrastructure and to our housing or schools and and the like to green them, to deliver justice, to, you know, ensure that people have access to equitable goods and that those those are job creating and that those are, you know, and that we are decarbonizing. We have a lot of tools now, you know, to do that kind of work, you know, and that that work, you know, and that that gets, you know, that gets driven to ordinary people already living in the city of Philadelphia. I think that that's, that's not just promising or a kind of fantasy of its own that has real tools, really existing possibilities that we can act on right now. I think the other fantasy is that the majority of work being done in Philadelphia can just be wished away. That, you know, the majority of work that people do right now in Philadelphia, you know, elites, I think, want to imagine that it isn't service sector work in hospitality industries, in janitorial industries that is deliberately underpaid and undercompensated. But in fact, that is, that is the work, right? So the work that Helen led to just deliver fair scheduling to those workers through her Fair Work Week bill, you know, helped over 100,000 workers. But I think people tend not to, frankly, care about that workforce, even though that is what most people do in the city of Philadelphia. So the notion is that, you know, the notion that you can somehow wish that away or ignore it or that by focusing on these other larger projects or, you know, or other kinds of of subsidies that would guarantee, you know, higher levels of white collar employment to far fewer people that that would, would lift up that other kind of work, I think is, is false. It's just a fantasy. We've been trying that for several years in the city of Philadelphia. It hasn't worked, you know, and so we need this other model. We need a model that is centered on the green new deal. We need a model that is centered on guaranteeing real wages and, and housing to service sector workers in the city of Philadelphia. And I think we, and, you know, and then driving money, frankly, at a state level to the school district of Philadelphia, which we know we have to do because the state system of funding was recently ruled unconstitutional by a a court in Philadelphia, thanks in part to the work led by Helen and dozens of advocates to, you know, over the years to call it as such. And so I think we're going to see those transformations over the next few years. And we need a leader in place who's ready to recognize all those opportunities. I think that's, you know, I think it's, it's the, the, the time is now, you know, to really realize all these gains that we've been pursuing on the left for, for many years and now have a, a number of different opportunities to realize. Well, Helen Gim and Nikhil Saval, thank you both very much. 
Thank you so much, Dan. It's been a pleasure to join The Dig. It's been an honor to be with my friend, Nikhil Saval, and I look forward uh, to celebrating with you in, later in May. Thanks so much, Dan, for having me. Helen Gim has been a public education organizer, city council member, and is now candidate for mayor of Philadelphia. Nikhil Saval is a former labor activist, founder of Reclaim Philly, editor at N Plus One, and now Pennsylvania State Senator from District One, which covers South Philly and Center City. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We're recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theo Real Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archive at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Hold up. 